Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. and I'm so sorry about the delay the last few weeks. January has been a heck of a month health-wise for me. As you know from my last episode, I um, was diagnosed with COVID-19 and I'm so grateful that I came through on the other side and I feel pretty much 100% better, unlike I know so many out there. So very grateful for that, but of course that kind of knocked me on my butt for a while. And then I had a planned foot surgery, so that was quite intense. Um, The results are great and everything I think is going to work out just as it should, but I will say foot surgery is not for the faint of heart. It is extremely painful, especially when you're dealing with, you know, bone, bone related stuff, not trying to gross anyone out. Although I guess if you're listening to Crime and Beauty, you don't, you have a high tolerance for that kind of thing. But yeah, it it was really, really intense and I was not I was really not able to do all that much in the beginning anyway, and I still have a full-time job. So a lot of my energy was focused on, you know, work and just healing and rest. So I'm back at it though. I am currently in a boot for several weeks, but feeling a lot better and very much looking forward to putting out new episodes. So again, I really thank you for your patience and let's get started. So today I decided to go back to the turn of the 20th century and cover Jane Toppin. Jane was a 26-year-old nurse from Boston, Massachusetts, who gave lethal injections of morphine to 31 hospital patients and was suspected of having killed an additional 70 patients over the course of a two-decade career. When apprehended, she said she wanted to kill more people than anyone who has ever lived before, but could only provide details to solve 31 crimes. Her history of suicide attempts helped her win an insanity plea, and she was eventually confined to a state mental hospital for 40 years until she died in custody. Now, Jane is often considered an angel of death type of serial killer who takes on a caretaker role and attacks the vulnerable and dependent, though she also murdered for seemingly more personal reasons, such as in the case of the Davis family. It's also possible Jane was motivated by jealousy in the case of the murder of her foster sister. She later described her motivation as a paralysis of thought and reason, a strong urge to poison. She used poison for more than just murder, reportedly poisoning a housekeeper just enough so that he appeared so that she appeared drunk in order to steal her job and kill the family. She even poisoned herself to evoke the sympathy of men who courted her. So quite a character, this one. Now, sources that I used, good old Wikipedia, as always, there was a great document from Murderpedia from um, the psychology, excuse me, the Department of Psychology from Radford University, and their sources included Harold Schechter's book, Fatal, The Poisonous Life of a Female Serial Killer, which I do intend to read because I really like Harold Schechter's books, as well as a couple of websites. So let's get into the life of Jane Toppin. Jane Toppin was born Honora Kelly on March 31st, 1854, the daughter of Irish immigrants. Her mother, Bridget Kelly, died of tuberculosis when she was very young. 
Her father, Peter Kelly, was well known as an eccentric and abusive alcoholic, nicknamed by those who knew him as Kelly the Crack, as in Crackpot. In later years, Kelly became the source of many local rumors concerning his supposed insanity, the most popular one being that his madness finally drove him to sew his own eyelids closed while working as a tailor. Ouch. In 1860, only a few years after his wife's death, Kelly took his two youngest children, eight-year-old Delia Josephine and six-year-old Honora, to the Boston Female Asylum, an orphanage for indigent female children. When the board examined the shabby dress and poor hygiene of the young girls, it was decided that these children had been subject to neglect and possible abuse. So the vote was unanimous to allow the children to stay at the asylum. Kelly surrendered the two girls, never to see them again. Documents from the asylum note that they were, quote, rescued from a very miserable home. No records exist of Delia and Honora's experiences during their time in the asylum, but reportedly, Delia became a sex worker, while their older sister Nellie, who was not committed to the orphanage, was committed to an insane asylum. In November 1862, less than two years after her father had left them, Honora was placed as an indentured servant in the home of Abner and Ann Topin of Lowell, Massachusetts. Though never formally adopted by the Topins, Honora took on the surname of her benefactors and eventually became known as Jane Topin. Not sure where Jane came from, but I read that the couple gave her that name. The original Topin family already had a daughter, Elizabeth, with whom Honora was on good terms initially. Over the next few years, Jane would suffer shame and humiliation at the hands of her foster mother. Although Elizabeth never mistreated Jane, she developed a bitter hate and jealousy of her foster sister. Most of all, Jane envied the fact that Elizabeth would get eventually married someday. Now, I wonder if this is a sort of weird displacement. Um, I'm not sure why she didn't have so much hatred for her abuser as opposed to Elizabeth, but perhaps it's, you know, just that stemming of jealousy. You often think about that when, you know, you've, you have a, a, like a lover's triangle, right? And then the wife gets mad at the mistress as opposed to the husband. I don't know what that, if that's called anything, but that's what it kind of seems like here. Jane excelled in school and was once courted by a Lowell office worker who even gave her an engagement ring engraved with the image of a bird. The relationship soured when he moved to another town and fell in love with his landlord's daughter, a woman he eventually married. Jane seemed completely normal prior to being jilted, but after that, she twice attempted suicide and suffered through a period of odd behavior that included efforts to predict the future through analysis of dreams. In order to overcome the abuse from Anne, Jane developed a vivacious personality and denied her Irish heritage by making derogatory anti-Irish and anti-Catholic statements in the Protestant circles in which she moved. While some of her schoolmates liked her a great deal, others despised her as an outrageous liar. She spun tales of her heritage and would often pin her troublesome deeds on other children. Due to her unhappiness with her situation and the unlikelihood that she would never marry, Jane grew, quote, unattractively plump. Now, that's not my opinion. I don't think that being plump is a bad thing, but I think they were basically suggesting that she let herself go. Um, again, that's no judgment. I am very body positive, so please keep that in mind that that was from one of the sources. In 1874, Jane was released of her duties to the Toppin family and received $50 as stipulated by the indenture agreement. 
Although Jane was released from her indentured obligations, she remained in the Toppin household for a decade and worked for her foster sister Elizabeth after Mrs. Toppin died. While there, Elizabeth married Oramel Brigham, quite a name, a young deacon in the local church. For some reason, I imagine this guy has huge mutton chops, right? Oramel Brigham has to. Jane moved out of the Brigham household, and the circumstances surrounding her departure are unknown. But Elizabeth remained kind to Jane and assured her that she could come back and visit whenever she wanted. In 1885, Jane began training to be a nurse at Cambridge Hospital. She was quite popular with the patients and acquired the nickname Jolly Jane, but her colleagues were not as taken with her. She was not well-liked by her fellow trainees, and she was perceived as a devious gossip that repeatedly lied about her background. She was also suspected of stealing, but was never caught. Once Jane became close with her patients, she would pick her favorites. They were usually elderly and very sick. During her residency, Jane used her patients as guinea pigs. At first, she would falsify their charts or give them small doses of medicine to make them so they would have to stay. She began conducting scientific experiments on her patients in which she would alternate different doses of morphine or atropine to examine the effects on the patients. She grew to like atropine because of the more animated symptoms that were associated with it. She medicated them to drift in and out of consciousness and even got into bed with them. One patient, Mrs. Amelia Finney, lived to later tell the tale. After surgery, Jane administered some bitter-tasting medicine to Amelia to help with her pain. As she was slipping into unconsciousness, she realized that Jane had gotten into bed with her and began kissing her all over her face. Can you imagine? Luckily for Mrs. Finney, Jane was startled by someone and hastily left the room. As Amelia gained consciousness the next day, she thought the incident had been a dream, and she checked out of the hospital, keeping her fears silent until she found out that Jane had been arrested in 1901. Even though her colleagues did not like her, she won the favor of a couple of doctors who gave her glowing recommendations to receive wider training at the more respectable Massachusetts General Hospital. In the head nurse's leave of absence, Jane was named the temporary representative. But colleagues again disliked her and suspected that she was using blatant disregard for the dosages of medication she was giving her patients. Quite a few patients were speculated to have died under her care. In the summer of 1889, Jane broke an important rule and left the ward without permission. So she was discharged without ever receiving her nursing license, even though she had passed the final and her diploma was signed. After a stint as a private nurse, Jane returned to Cambridge Hospital, but was dismissed due to suspicions she was administering opiates recklessly, a rumor that had always followed her. So, Jane decided to begin her career as a full-time private nurse. She was regarded as the most successful private nurse in Cambridge, even though some of her employers were annoyed with her intricate lies and petty theft. In her free time, Jane apparently loved to guzzle beer and spread rumors. If she wasn't a killer, she sounds kind of fun. <laughs> in May 1895, Jane poisoned her landlord, Israel Dunham, because he was feeble and fussy. She then moved in with her dead landlord's wife, Lovey, and poisoned her a few years later. In 1899, Jane's foster sister, Elizabeth Brigham, met her at a vacation home in Cape Cod. Jane slowly poisoned her with strychnine and claimed that this was the first victim that she hated. Jane told Elizabeth's widower, Old Mutton Chops Ormel, that it was her sister's last wish for Jane to have her gold watch and chain. 
Ormel obliged because this sounded characteristic of his dear wife Elizabeth, but he later found out that after Jane was arrested, she had pawned the gold watch and chain. Later that year, Jane poisoned 70-year-old Mary McClear after she was recommended by the woman's doctor to take care of her. It was speculated that Jane took some of Mary's clothing. This murder was odd because Jane did not know Mary personally, and she liked to kill people she knew. A few months later, she killed her old friend Myra Connors with strychnine in order to take over her position as dining matron at the theological school. After Myra died, Jane approached the dean of the theological school and informed him that Myra was planning on going on a sabbatical and that she'd intended to recommend Jane for the job. Jane lied to the dean and told him that Myra had instructed her in all of the duties of the job. The dean offered Jane the job, and right from the start, her coworkers questioned her competence. During the summer, while the theological school was out of session, she worked at the mess hall at the biological school in Woods Hole. By the end of 1900, Jane was dismissed from her job at the theological school without claiming any victims for financial irregularities and complaints that had been lodged against her. Jane began living under new landlords, Melvin and Eliza Beadle, whom she also poisoned, but only enough to give them gastrointestinal illness. Jane poisoned the Beadle's housekeeper, Mary Sullivan, enough to frame her as drunk so she would be dismissed and Jane could take over. And it worked. The landlord of the cottage where Jane vacationed decided that it was time to collect on the $500 she owed them, so Mary Maddie Alden embarked on a trip to the Beatles' house in Cambridge. Jane gave Maddie some doctored mineral water and later that evening gave her more morphine when she became sick. Over seven days under the noses of everyone, even a doctor who'd been successful in catching another woman serial killer who used arsenic, Jane poisoned her victim slowly. She played with Maddie, bringing her in and out of lucidity, only to immediately plunge her deep into a coma. Finally, Maddie Davis died. Jane then moved in with the Davis family to help take care of Alden Davis after the passing of his wife. Less than a week after she'd been there, Jane set fire to some papers in a closet in her new home. Much to her dismay, the fire was quickly extinguished. A few days later, Jane lit a fire in the pantry and went out for an afternoon stroll. Fortunately for the Davis family, friends saw the smoke and rushed to put the fire out. The next week, Jane set another fire in the Davis home, but once again, it was extinguished in time. At this point, you have to wonder what is going on. That's a lot of fires in a few weeks. Jane poisoned Genevieve Gordon, the youngest Davis daughter who remained in the house to make sure that her father would fare well without his wife. Obviously, he did not. Jane tried to pass this off as a suicide due to the fact that Genevieve was so distraught over her mother's death. Jane turned her sights then on Alden Davis and killed him in less than two weeks after his youngest daughter's death. She then successfully poisoned the last of the Davis family, the oldest daughter, Minnie Gibbs. While Minnie was dying, Jane brought her 10-year-old son to bed with her. It is unknown if she sexually abused the child. She then returned to her hometown of Lowell in hopes of marrying her dead foster sister's widower, Ormel Brigham, Old Mutton Chops. Jane killed his sister, 77-year-old Edna Bannister, because she felt she was in the way of her marriage to Oramel. On August 31, 1901, Minnie Gibbs's father-in-law, Captain Gibbs, summoned Leonard Wood, the leading toxicologist in Massachusetts, to exhume the bodies of the Davis family to test his suspicions that they had been poisoned. Jane read this in the newspaper. 
When the bodies were exhumed, a state police detective, John S. Patterson, was assigned to follow Jane and keep an eye on her. Meanwhile, frustrated that all of her attempts to win Ormel were not working, she even poisoned him and nursed him back to health to prove how indispensable she was, Jane took an overdose of morphine herself. After she was back on her feet, Ormel promptly kicked her out. Jane then traveled to New Hampshire to visit an old friend, Sarah Nichols. On October 29th, Jane was arrested for the murder of Minnie Gibbs. During the entire time that Jane was awaiting a formal trial, she remained in the Barnstable jailhouse. She quickly befriended the jailer's wife, who believed that Jane was innocent. As she sat in her jail cell, Jane gained more and more weight. Again, I'm not sure why that's important, but just was included. A few days later, an arraignment was held for Jane. The trial was continued until November 8th. Jane pled not guilty. The state proposed that Jane had been using arsenic to poison her victims because it had been found in the bodies. It turned out that the embalming fluid used was mostly arsenic and the prosecution was at a standstill about how Jane had killed her victims. It was old Captain Gibbs, Minnie Gibbs's father-in-law, who proposed that Jane had used morphine and atrophine as her poisons of choice. An inquisition hearing about the deaths of the Davis girls was held after Jane's hearing, and Captain Gibbs' suspicions were founded. The bodies of Maddie and Alden Davis were exhumed. On December 6, 23 members of a grand jury assembled to hear Jane's case. Jane was officially charged with four counts of murder of the entire Davis family. Once again, she pled not guilty. By the following spring, papers reported that Jane had undergone a psychiatric evaluation by a panel of experts who had determined that she was insane. Jane had admitted that she had an irresistible sexual impulse to kill, and she confessed to 11 murders. The trial began in the summer of 1902. Jane's lawyer grudgingly conceded 11 murders, staking his hopes on a plea of insanity. Jane cinched the case with her own testimony, telling the court, quote, that is my ambition, to have killed more people, more helpless people, than any man or woman who has ever lived. It took less than eight hours for the entire trial, and the jury only had to deliberate for 20 minutes. Jane was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was sentenced to Totten Insane Hospital for life. Jane appeared to be overcome with joy about the verdict because she assumed that she would be able to convince the hospital of her sanity and be set free in a few months' time. It was later discovered that Jane had confessed to her defense lawyer and longtime friend, James Stewart Murphy, that she had committed more than 31 murders, though it was suspected the number could be between 70 and 100 victims. No accurate list of her hospital victims was ever compiled, and various New England families avoided the scandal by refusing official requests for exhumations and autopsies. In addition to this, as a supplement to the New York Journal, William Randolph Hearst typed up Jane's confession. In this document, Jane admitted that she wanted the panel of psychiatrists to find her insane. Upon convincing them of this lie, she felt very smug in knowing that she had outsmarted a panel of experts. She described the exquisite pleasure it gave her to kill her patients, and she marveled at the lack of feeling and remorse she felt for doing these horrible things. In an attempt to show that she was not without feeling, Jane claimed that the jilt she received from the lover in her youth seemed to be the root of all of her problems. Jane explained, quote, If I had been a married woman, I probably would not have killed all of those people. I would have had my husband, my children, and my home to take up my mind. What a psycho. For the next three and a half decades, Jane's mental state slowly deteriorated. 
for a time, she refused to eat any of the food at the hospital because, ironically, she thought that the food had been poisoned. As the years passed, Jane became a quiet old lady who did not cause any trouble. On August 17, 1938, Jane died of old age at Totten Insane Hospital. She was remembered by her keepers as a quiet old lady, but older attendants remembered her smile as she beckoned them into her room, saying, Get some morphine, dearie, and we'll go out in the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. Jane Toppin is widely believed to have been the inspiration for the incomparable Bessie Denker, a character in William March's novel The Bad Seed, which Maxwell Anderson turned into a successful play and film. Like Toppin, Denker was a serial poisoner who began killing at a young age. In the independent film American Nightmare, written and directed by John Keyes, Debbie Rochon portrays a serial killer named Jane Toppin who manages to kill numerous characters throughout the course of the film by various means. She was also the subject of one of six monologues in the play Murderous by Anne Bertram. And that is the story of Jane Toppin, the Angel of Death. Very creepy story. I remember watching a documentary a long time ago about her, and she is definitely an anomaly. You know, there's not a lot of female serial killers, but also with the Angel of Death, the sexual angle with her is very odd. And I don't know of any other cases where killer nurses or doctors would get in bed with their patients and basically molest them. So do you guys think that Jane was insane? I have mixed feelings. I mean, based on her family history, it sounds it sounds like her father and her sister struggled with mental illness. And quite frankly, you know, based on some of the comments in her later life and her beliefs about her paranoid beliefs and delusions, it kind of indicates that perhaps she was. But at the same time, I think legally... I would say she was probably, I don't know. I think nowadays if she was prosecuted, I think she would have been found guilty um, because I think there was so much manipulation in her lying and her um, attempts to, well, I guess, did she attempt to conceal it? I don't know. I'm, I'm really struggling with this one, if she was insane or if she was not insane, legally speaking. Um, again, clearly there was some mental issues Um, No doubt about it, personality disorders, things like that. What are your thoughts? I'd love to hear your comments. Okay, and now for something beautiful. This week we're doing kind of an investment one. It's called the Foro UFO 2. That's F-O-R-E-O. That's Foro. I thought it was Foreo at first, or Foreo. But it's Foro, and it's a wildly creative Swedish beauty tech brand. Um, They are one of my favorite brands right now in terms of skincare. And the UFO2 is a 90-second sonic-powered mask device. It's like a little circle, like like a flying saucer almost. I think that's why they call it the UFO, but it fits in the palm of your hand. Um, I chose the pearl pink color. It's really cute. I believe they also have like a minty green and maybe like a fuchsia. But basically, it's this device that you use and you clip a small face mask to it. I know that sounds very strange, but you clip a little mask that is um, pre-designed for this product. And then for 90 seconds, you basically move the device over your face and it provides sonic pulsations, LED light therapy, heating and cooling. Um, So basically you're getting an ultimate facial treatment in less than two minutes. 
And actually what I typically like to do is because there's usually some serum left in the mask pouch is I'll do it twice in a row just so I'm using all of that product. So what this can do for you, it can build collagen, balance skin tone, firm eye contour, soften fine lines, tame your breakouts, soothe sunburn, and diminish dark circles. The Korean mask formulas were developed by the same beauty experts who pioneered the original sheet mask concept. So it's safe and effective for all skin types, and there are different ones. You know, there's a moisturizing one um, that's focused on hyaluronic acid. There's another one that's like collagen infused that's all about anti-aging. There's, there's quite a few different kinds, and that's been really fun exploring the different masks that they have, and they come in this really cute little box with, I think, three per box, three or four per box. But... The UFO is made with ultra-hygienic silicone that's soft to the touch. As I said, it fits into the palm of your hand, so very easy to travel with as well. And it's USB chargeable. It's USB rechargeable, very lightweight, and you can really just treat yourself anywhere you are. It also comes with a two-year limited warranty. And that's important because, again, it's an investment. This is not an inexpensive product, but it is something that I think you could get great value out of if you do like if you do enjoy masks. So let's quickly talk about the different functions. So the hyperinfusion technology pulsations, basically it kind of does this little shake, um, which apparently boosts absorption of the active mask ingredients and gives you sort of that massage, which is really nice. The cooling feature, um, it's basically a mode that can help diminish appearance of pores and reduce puffiness. You don't need to put it in the freezer or the fridge. Um, you just, with a simple touch of a button, it will kind of cool and refresh and invigorate your skin. Now, my my favorite is, I think, the warming function. So it's a gentle heat, and it's very relaxing. It just gradually warms and, again, it infuses the mask ingredients into the skin, but it's just really comforting, honestly, especially during the winter. Then there is the full-spectrum LED light therapy. So there's three targeted photofacials, and you can choose, I believe, from red, green, and blue. I use the red, and I believe the red is um, good for collagen turnover and um, dealing with blemishes and you know sunspots, things like that, but you can change those. The coolest part about the UFO and a lot of the 4O products is that they actually have an app, and you can build a personalized skin profile and get expert beauty tips and advice about which UFO mask is best for you. Plus, you can track your mask usage and set reminders so you never miss a chance um, to get a little baby mini facial. So it's kind of a cool system. The fact that it's integrated with technology, the fact that it targets so many things that you can take it anywhere you go, and that it does um, function in a lot of different ways therapeutically, if that makes sense. So again, how to use it, basically you download the 4 app and follow the instructions to pair your device. And then when you use it, you remove this attachment ring and add and, and clip in the activated mask from the sachet that you get. Secure the mask on by clipping it in. And then basically you gently glide the UFO across clean, dry skin and massage the formula in using circular motions until the device turns off, which indicates the end of treatment and then dispose of the mask and rinse the UFO under running water. Um, and 
like I said, what I like to do is I like to use it twice in a row because usually there's still leftover serum in the sachet and it feels so good and it just takes like no time. So might as well do it twice. And then finally, you just want to use your fingers to gently pat any um, remaining essence into your skin and then fall with your favorite moisturizer or don't whatever you want to do. But it's, again, a, an investment piece, but I really enjoy Foro's brand. I think that they're really cutting edge, and um, I have only seen very positive reviews of this product. So if you're looking to splurge on a, something that you'll use over and over again and it's easy to use, you know, sometimes buying these expensive beauty devices, you're like, oh, my gosh, am I going to use it intensely and then give up on it? Well, in this case, because it's so it takes so little time to use it's kind of like a no-brainer, to be honest with you. And again, you can set up reminders in your phone if you wanted. But I would highly recommend checking it out. I've been really enjoying using it, and I'm looking forward to trying different masks. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 19 of Crime and Beauty. You can follow on Facebook at Crime and Beauty Podcast, at Instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast. Send me a Gmail at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear your feedback. I've been also uploading my episodes to YouTube, as I've mentioned before, and I've been getting some cool comments, um, and I really, really, really like that. I want to engage with anyone that's listening and hear what your thoughts are. You can listen to Crime and Beauty on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, YouTube, as I just mentioned, and Podbean. So that's crimeandbeauty.podbean.com. And thank you so much. And until next time, stay beautiful.